Good morning again, everyone. Good to see you all here today. And if you would take your Bibles and let's look again to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and we are looking at verse 4. Philippians 4 and verse 4, as we have been considering this theme of curing anxiety, dealing with our anxiety and worries and fears. This is what the Word of God says to us. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. For our text this morning, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you are the God of peace. That we can truly rest in you. You are our refuge and our strength. And in knowing you, and in knowing your love for us, and in knowing your promises to us, and your care for us, we can know your peace. We thank you most of all for the peace that you have brought between us. That you have given us reconciliation through your Son. That we have peace with you. Peace that lasts forever. And so even in this world we may have tribulation. We know that Jesus has overcome the world. And that we are going to be with you. Give us rest now we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated. God's Word has been teaching us over the past few weeks how to deal with anxiety, how to deal with worry. And this is a problem that so many people are facing today. Even, even if you would say that anxiety is not a problem for you, it's not something that you deal with regularly, I think all of us have had times, haven't we, of anxiety, worry, Anxiousness and fear and whatever other word you would use to describe it. We, we all know what that's like to feel those moments where, for whatever reason, we have entered into this period of fear that we can't seem to, to move past. And the Bible is telling us how to overcome it. And even though there are practical things here for us to put into place, and we need to be putting them into place, the ultimate answer is in the strength of Christ. The ultimate answer is really in resting in the sufficiency of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, in knowing what it is that we have in Him, knowing the promises that we have through Him, and simply in knowing Him. Knowing Jesus is the greatest joy of life, it's the only joy that is eternal, it's never ending. Even in the worst difficulties of life, in the worst types of suffering, we can rejoice because we know Jesus. It was Job 
who wrote, Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Knowing Jesus, knowing God, gives to us such great peace. But there are practical things that he gives us here. And what are those things that we have seen? And the first was in verse 4 where he simply commands us to rejoice always. Since it is a command, that means that it's what? It's a choice, isn't it? It's an act of the will. Rejoicing is a deliberate choice that we make. Not dependent upon emotions and happenstance. Rejoicing is something that we choose to do out of obedience. And of course, how do we do it? Just as I said just a moment ago, in the Lord. All of our joy comes in knowing Him. We can always rejoice because of that. Secondly, we were reminded in our anxiety that God is present with us. God is near to us. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That we have our Father that we can rest in in times of anxiety and worry. He is with us. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And which is why the Apostle Paul taught us in verse 6 that since God is near to us, what are we to do with our anxieties and worries? What are we to do? We're to pray about them, aren't we? We are to pray. And we are to take our anxieties, our worries. We are to cast our cares upon Him. And the reason why we can do that is because He cares for us. We pray. And with that, fourthly, we pray with thanksgiving. Now, there is a twofold aspect we could say of this thanksgiving. Number one, we let our minds meditate on all that we have, all that we can be thankful for. But even more so than that, we give thanks even when we don't know what the result of our prayer is. We don't have to know the outcome. Prayer is not a a Christmas wish list like so many think. People think, Prayer is we go to God and here's our list of demands and God's just going to give us what we want. That is foolish. There's a lot of mocking that takes place about Christian prayer, but the mocking is not based upon what Christian prayer is. Mocking is based upon a false view of prayer. The Bible does not present prayer as writing a wish list to Santa Claus and God just gives us what we want. That's not what prayer is. Prayer is taking our concerns to God and trying to bend ourselves to His will, not have Him bend to ours. Why in the world would we want an omniscient, omnipotent omnipotent God to bend to my will? Do I know what's best for me? That's foolish. You don't even give your child everything that he or she wants, do you? Why? Because you know what's best for them, and the third bowl of ice cream is probably not best for them. And it's not best for you either if you want to sleep that night, is it? You know what's best for your children. You don't give your children whatever they want. If you give your children everything they want, you're a bad parent. You are. No, we we know better than that. Same thing with prayer. We take our requests to God and we leave them with Him and we give thanks because we know that our God who loves us causes all things to work together for our good. That's a problem. And so we give thanks even when we don't know the outcome. We give thanks. And the promise is, in verse 7, when we do these things, when we take our requests to Him with thanksgiving, when we choose to rejoice, that the peace of God will be with us. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding. The peace that the world can't make sense of. This is the peace that we have available to us. This is the path. Rejoicing, trusting, praying, thanking, and resting in God our Father who loves us. That is the path to peace. That's the path. The path. 
being anxiety-free. And now we come to these two verses that are before us, and we are still looking at this theme. Verse 9 makes it clear. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We are still looking at this life of peace, how to be free from worry and anxiety. And there are two, two points that he makes in these verses. If we are to have peace, it's going to require, first, right thinking, and second, it's going to require right practice, right thinking, right practice. Let's look at verse 8. He writes, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, I have to tell you, and I've had some conversations with some of you this week, and looking at this verse, it's been pretty difficult to prepare for. And it's not been difficult to prepare for because verse 8 is hard to understand. It's really not. Uh, we'll walk through these things and briefly describe the meaning of the words mentioned here. It's really not difficult to know what he's saying to us, but the difficulty in understanding verse 8 is my surprise in reading commentaries and listening to sermons this week and seeing the different ways that great commentators and great pastors and preachers have approached this verse. So many of them have taken verse 8 and used it to speak of how to live a holy life. That was the point. And if I were to tell you names, these are men you listen to. These are great men, great men of God. James Montgomery Boyce, for example, in his commentary, and Boyce is one of my favorite commentators. Boyce used verse 8 to speak about how to live a life free from legalism and to live in Christian liberty. That was fantastic, by the way. I loved it, loved every, every word of it, thought it was great. And one day I might come back to verse 8 and I might preach you a sermon how to live in Christian liberty and avoid legalism. And the way that we do that is not by living according to a series of rules, but keeping these things before our eyes. These are principles, aren't they? That we can live by. Whatever is just, whatever is honorable, whatever is truthful, so on, whatever is pure, those are the things that we are to, to look at and consider. But while those... Sermons were great, the commentaries were great, and the points they made were great, and the application were fine. That's not what he's talking about right here. It just, it just isn't. Sometimes that's, that can be hard. Sometimes you feel like Martin Luther, and you're sitting there at Vorms, and you're asking yourself the question, am I alone wise? <clears throat> is it, is it, is, 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 am I missing something here? That's kind of the way that you, you feel. But even though those are great sermons and great applications, these verses are not given in a vacuum, are they? These verses are not... I mean, if these verses were in chapter 3, then, then we'd have something there. But we're not in chapter 3. We're in chapter 4, and he's been writing to us very clearly about rejoicing, about peace. And when we come to verse 9, at the end of verse 9, as I've already read, it's clearly connected to verse 7. Would you agree with me with that? It's clearly connected there, and so when we, when we see that the peace of God will be with you in verse 7, and then in verse 9, the God of peace will be with you, we're still talking about peace, aren't we? I mean, I, I just, we're not leaving it. Here we are. We're talking about peace. Now, on top of this, one of the things that stood out to me when I was studying this passage is what is missing. Here in, in verse 8, we have a list of things that we're to think on. 
Now, if you know anything about Pauline epistles, when you read them, and there's a list, usually there's a contrasting list. For example, if you flip over in your Bibles, and you don't have to do this right now, but if you are to, to Colossians chapter 3 and to Ephesians chapter 4, two letters written around the same time frame here in the same time, you would find con- contrasting lists. You would find in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul saying, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and put on these holy attributes of humility and things like that and kindness and meekness. But before he says put on, what does he say? Put off, put to death what is earthly in you. In Ephesians 4, he will say, let the thief no longer steal, but instead let him do honest labor, working with his hands. You see, there's a, there's a twofold thing being said. Stop doing this, start doing this. Put away falsehood, speak the truth. All these things we see in Colossians and Ephesians, take off the bad, put on the good. But in Philippians 4, what's missing? There's no contrasting list here, is there? He he does not say, think pure thoughts, stop thinking impure thoughts. Now, obviously, that's that's true. That's obviously a a true point. We, We want to do that. I mean, listen, one of the reasons why we struggle with sin is because we let our minds dwell on impure thoughts. And the behavior follows the mind. What you put in your eyes goes into your brain. What goes into your brain ends up affecting the way that you live. That's obviously true. Would you agree? I mean, obviously. But he's not saying that here. In fact, if there is a contrast being made here, the only thing that he's told us to take off is what? Worry. Anxiety. That's the only thing. The only thing we're told to stop doing is being anxious. So if there is a contrast present in the passage, it is between anxious thinking and excellent thinking. And that would be it. He wants us to think about these things rather than thinking about worry. That is really the main thrust of verse 8. It's the only imperative given in verse 8. If there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. This is what you are to be thinking about. Now, this is a word that, that doesn't mean to give casual consideration to something. It's, we really get a mathematical term from the word that's being used here. And, and the word means to dwell on this, to, to calculate it. And it's continual. To always have these things in our mind. To continually dwell on these excellent virtues. That's what he's saying. The mind is to be saturated with these excellent things described in verse 8. Now, how does this relate to anxiety and peace? How does dwelling on these godly virtues help us to ease our anxiety and fear? I think this is why people kind of leave it. Because that connection might not be super clear. I believe what Paul is saying is simply this. The mind of the Christian is to be so captivated with Christ and his truth that that pushes out the worry of this world. I think it's really just that. That our minds are so captivated on Jesus and so saturated with his word and his excellencies that it doesn't leave a lot of room for preoccupation with the worries of this world. 
And when we go back to verse 7 again, let's read it. He says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. There it is, it's connected to verse 9, but notice what he says. Will guard your hearts and will guard your minds. The peace of God will guard your minds. And in verse 8 he says, this is where the mind is to be. On these things. These things in verse 8, if you dwell on them, what are they going to do? They're going to guard your mind. They're going to guard your mind. This is what he is presenting to us here. Keep your minds focused on these things that are worthy of praise. Now, when we step back and we start analyzing worried thinking, a lot of our worried thinking is worldly thinking. Not always. That's not always true. Sometimes our worried thinking is because of some tremendous trauma that we are facing. But a lot of times, our worried thinking is worldly thinking. It might be because of covetousness. It might be because of what we're going to see next week, discontentment. It might be because of a lack of faith and trust in the promises of God. Whatever it may be, a lot of our worried thinking is worldly thinking. And so Paul is calling us to a higher frame of mind here. He says it in Colossians 3.2. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, you want to know how the Apostle Paul can be sitting in a prison cell, and he's once again going to use himself as an example in verse 9, and have no worried thinking. And the answer is because his mind is set on things that are above and not on things that are here on this earth. He doesn't have worldly thinking. He has a mind dwelling on excellent things. Now, I just want to keep building on this before we get into this text. When we define the word worry, do you remember what the word worry meant? Even in your English dictionary. The word worry meant to dwell on trouble and to give way to one's fears and anxieties. That's what worry is. It's dwelling on our problems. Let me tell you this, just by... Personal application here. If you are the type of person who dwells on your troubles, you are going to make your anxieties worse. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been around somebody and every time you talk to this person, all they do is tell you about all their troubles? All they want to talk about is everything going wrong with their life. They don't care about you. They're asking you how you feel so that you'll ask them how they feel so then they can unload... All their problems and all their worries. Now, please don't hear me wrong. Galatians 6 says we are to bear one another's burdens. We ought to be talking about our our troubles with one another. But whenever you're with somebody and that's all they talk about, everything they can think of, from the smallest thing to the biggest thing, and you're on the phone with them for three hours and they're describing every bad thing that's ever happened in the history of their life, how does that make you feel? It's depressing, isn't it? Let's just be honest. It's depressing. And usually, you avoid those people in your life. If you're the type of person who's calling people and they're not answering, it might be because you're depressing. And you need to stop telling people every time you talk to them about all your troubles, including the little wart on your middle finger that won't go away. Everything. Now, that's true when you listen to other people's problems. But when you dwell on your problems, it has the same effect. Sometimes we give way to it. 
and it makes it all worse. We don't want to dwell on that. We want to dwell instead on excellent things. It's not a not an accident that that's the word that he's using here. It's not just think, it's meditate on them. Dwell on them. Be absolutely persistent in having your mind filled with these things. Do we understand how important it is to guard our minds? One of the, the first things that must happen in our sanctification, in our growth in becoming like Christ, is the changing of our minds. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Our minds must be changed, must be guarded. The Holy Spirit is about the business of renewing our minds. So important in living the Christian life because that mind will direct the heart and the behavior. Even Marty, after church last week, Marty likes to share with me little anecdotes at times, and she was telling me how her mother, I believe it was, used to say that if you do not control your mind, it's going to control you. So true. Very true statement. We have to have control of our minds. That captures what Paul is talking about, both in a in a negative and a positive sense. And in the negative sense, we don't want to dwell on worry, as we have said. And again, we go back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. What does choosing to dwell on your anxiety actually do for you? Jesus said in Matthew 6, 27, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Dwelling on your worries accomplishes nothing but making you worry more. And it's an ugly cycle. Isn't it? Because it just takes you down further and further into the pit. But there is a positive sense when we think about guarding our minds. Not just what we take out, but what we put in. We, we do not simply leave a void where worry once was. We replace that void with these excellent things. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Instead of dwelling on worry, the mind is stayed on Christ. It's stayed on, on our Father. It's stayed on the good things, the excellent things in His sight. Whenever the mind is elevated, there's going to be peace in the heart. Now, as Paul talks about these things, he lists them here. There are six whatevers and two innies. Six whatevers and two innies. That's great English there. The first one is this. Whatever is true. Finally, my brothers, again, he's wrapping up this section. Whatever is true, he says. Now, we want our minds to be fixed on that which is true. And I can't move past this without at least making this type of application. I read a statistic this week from Warren Wearsby. Now, I just have to say, it might come to a shock to you that I'm not a mathematical genius. But I have absolutely no idea how people come up with statistics. Warren Wearsby had a statistic in his commentary that said 8% of the things that people worry about are legitimate matters of concern. How in the world does he know that? What do they say, like 60% of all statistics are made up? But Warren Wearsby said 8% of the things people worry about are legitimate matters of concern. The other 92% were either imaginary, they never happened, or they involved matters over which people had no control of anyway. 
Now, I don't know how he, actually, he quoted somebody, I think. I don't know how whoever that was he quoted came up with that. But I know in my life that's probably true. That seems to be pretty accurate of, of the way things have happened that I have worried about. The vast majority of them were totally in my head and never happened. I'm the type of person that finds a mosquito bite and I think it's cancer. And, and we do that, don't we? we? We worry about it. We worry about these things that are totally imaginary. And then when we begin to dwell on it, then we go on WebMD. And then we're finding we've got some disease that was eradicated 100 years ago, but it's coming back up right here in Douglasville, Georgia, in me. This is what we do. We do it. Uh, we, we worry about things that are totally imaginary, totally untrue, and we just kind of give way to those things. And we also worry about things like he said that we have no control of anyway. I mean, if I go to the doctor, and he looks at the, the bump or whatever, and he says, you know, I don't know what that is. Let's run tests. You know, I've got no outcome or no control over the outcome of those tests, do I? And I, It's totally normal to be anxious in that situation. You might hear something that's going to be life-altering. It's totally normal to be anxious in that moment and to feel fear, but to give way to worry, remember, to, to dwell on it and, and to, to go off into despair is the type of worry Paul is talking about here in these verses. You, you have no control over whatever it is, but you know the one who does. You know the one who has total and complete control over whatever is happening in your life. Why do we worry? Again, we go back to the Sermon on the Mount. What does it accomplish anyway? I can worry every day about whatever this is on my mind and nothing's going to change because I worried about it. Not a thing. I need to put in practice what we've said. Rejoice, be thankful because God's in control and his purpose will stand and it'll be a good purpose and pray. And pray. It's what we're being taught. But obviously when he speaks of whatever is true, he's not talking about something like that. Obviously when, when the Apostle Paul is writing about truth, He's writing about the truth of God's word, what we know about him. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Folks, our minds are to dwell on the truth of God's word. And we've looked at it, haven't we? How many promises do we have in God's word? Do I need to reiterate? Do I need to go over them again? We've already quoted Romans 8, 28. We could quote many more. God's promise to provide for us, to meet our needs, to never leave us, never forsake us. We've said these over and over again. We can sit here and meditate on all of these promises and find rest for our minds. And the greatest of which, folks, is the gospel itself. If tomorrow my entire world falls apart, I stand righteous in the sight of God on the basis of the merits of Jesus Christ, and there is not a thing that could pull that apart. Not a thing. A lot of our worried thinking is worldly thinking when we have so many things to be heavenly minded about and to praise our Lord for. Our minds are to be saturated with God's truth, which, by the way, if you don't know God's truth, your mind's not going to be saturated with it, is it? So important for us to be reading God's word so that the Holy Spirit uses God's word to help us control our mind and our thinking. Secondly, he says whatever is honorable, these things are to be dwelt on. We'll move a little quicker now. Honorable speaks to that which is worthy of respect. Holy things. Our mind is to be elevated to high and exalted things. Those things which God would refer to. 
as honorable. Thirdly, whatever is just, whatever is righteous. We need to have our mindset on honorable things. We need to have our mindset on righteous things. So important. Listen, let me just make another passing application here. One of the reasons why we struggle with anxiety and peace is because the sinfulness of the world is in our minds. It's in our hearts. When our minds become cluttered with the sins of the world, our behavior will follow. And what happens to Christian joy when you are living in sin? What happens to it? David said in Psalm 51 in his prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. You ever prayed that? Because you know what it's like to be going off into worldly things, worldly behaviors and sin, and the joy of your salvation is sometimes missing. Fourthly, it's related, whatever is pure. Our minds are to dwell on righteous things, on pure things. Yet again, how often do we let our minds dwell on impure things? We watch impure, filthy television shows. We listen to impure, filthy things on the radio or on our phones or or whatever. We read filthy, impure literature, whatever it might be. These things will bring us down so often because we will follow after that not only with our minds but with our behavior and and not only this. And, And I know what this is like. And I've talked to some of you who who have the same experience. A lot of times what brings Christians anxiety in the world today is not necessarily our own sinfulness because we are resting in the sufficiency of Christ, but the sinfulness of the world around us. I've talked to so many people, and I can relate to this in the past few years especially, who watch the news all the time, who listen to their favorite radio host all the time, who watch whatever they're watching the TV shows are whatever, and they see the filth that's being promoted in this world, and it makes them anxious. This world is wicked. What are we going to do? How am I going to bring up my children in this type of world? How am I going to protect them from this agenda and that agenda and guard their eyes and their thoughts? And, and then there's college, and, and am I really going to send my child off to that indoctrination center known as a university where they're going to be filled with worldly thinking and secularism and then the influences of this over-sexualized culture around them that is going to lead them into impurity? Is that what I want to do with my children? So what am I going to do when my children grow up? All this anxiety that comes because we are dwelling on the impurities of the world around us. Now, can you relate to that? I know I can. Well, we can't be focused on the things of this world because we know the one who conquered it. We know the one who's still sovereign over it. And these things make us plan differently. They make us maybe go about things differently and bathe the decisions that we make in prayer. But we have to remember that we are to rejoice because our Lord is in control. And one day he's going to come and judge this world, isn't he? And those things are going to be eliminated. Keep your minds free from impure things, whether it be in your personal life or whether it be just looking around at the things of the world. Don't dwell on those things. Fifth. Whatever is lovely. Six, whatever is commendable. The lovely speaks to whatever is pleasing and attractive. attractive. The, the commendable speaks to whatever is praiseworthy. Praiseworthy and lovely to who? To God. The things that he would consider lovely. 
the things that he would consider praiseworthy. Those are the things that our minds are to be fixed on. Worry, anxiety, fear. It's not lovely, is it? Some of the Lord's strongest rebukes to the disciples in the Gospels was, why are you so afraid, O you of little faith? Fear and worry and anxiety, those aren't lovely things. We want to dwell on those lovely things. He concludes by saying the two innies here, it's not conditional when he says if there is any. It's not conditional, it's really to be read since there are excellent things. Since there are things that are worthy of praise, we need to let our minds dwell on those things. Now, How do we do that, folks? How can we get our minds to think about things like this and we have to train our minds don't we yeah it's being focused and determined to do it but we're going to learn next week the secret to it so i'll tell you now i can do all things through christ who strengthens me now Let me get this out of the way because I say it every time and I can't help myself and hopefully if I say it now, I won't say it next week. Even though he's a Florida Gator, I love Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow used to put Philippians 4.13 in his eye black. He ought to know better than that. has nothing to do with football, folks. It has everything to do with how to live this type of life that Paul is exemplifying and he's calling us to. You train your minds in the strength of Christ Jesus who works in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Dwell on these things. And when we train our minds this way with the help of God to dwell on these excellent and godly things, we will find peace in our heart even in the midst of suffering. You know, one of the ways that we can do that is singing. Singing. Just practically. Last night during the Tennessee football game, my my friend Al, who was my pastor in Charleston, he called me and he wanted to talk all about Georgia football. I don't care about Georgia football, especially when I'm watching the Tennessee game. I almost hung up on him. What are you doing here? Yeah, exactly. I should have answered the phone. What's wrong with me? So he's going on and on and I'm half listening. Finally, he starts talking. He asked me what I was preaching on this morning, so I told him. He told me about the the speech that he had listened to one time from a Navy SEAL. Navy SEAL, I believe it was a commencement speech, and he was talking about some of their training that they went through as a SEAL, and one of the things that they did was they put them out in freezing cold water, and they just sat there in freezing cold, you know, up in the mud and in this water, and just left them out there. And the the drill sergeants or whatever they might call the the Navy SEAL commanders there were telling them, all I need is five people to quit and you can come right out of there and get food and sit by this fire and change clothes and all this kind of stuff. Just trying to get five people to quit who are not able to make it through SEAL training, which I imagine is maybe the hardest training our military does. And as this guy was given this speech... And the drill sergeants are talking and telling them to quit and this and that. One of the guys started to sing. have no idea what he was singing, but he started to sing. When he started singing, the other men started singing, and they all, in one big company, started singing. 
And it helped them get through the suffering and the pain and the trembling of the lips that they were experiencing until I guess the drill sergeant started to say, if you keep singing, you're going to be out here longer. But I thought, you know, there's some application to that. That in my times of fear and worry, when I want to dwell on good things, how helpful would it be for me to sing, Oh, the goodness of Jesus. Oh, the goodness. The goodness of Jesus. Satisfied, He is all that I need. May it become what may, that I rest all my days in the goodness. The goodness of Jesus. You know, we don't, God hasn't given us this gift of singing without purpose. Of course, it's to worship Him, but it also trains the heart, doesn't it? This is why the Apostle writes to speak to one another in psalms and in hymns and in spiritual songs. This encourages the heart. We have 150 songs in the Bible, 150 chapters of songs in the Bible, in the book of Psalms that we can go to and sing. And that's what they did. That's what, how they trained their hearts. This is how we too can train and guard our hearts to dwell on these things and not trouble. Now, all this list, do you know what it really boils down to? You want to know what is true, honorable, just? Where do you find these things? Scripture. When we read Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The same virtues that we read about in Philippians 4, 8, we read about in Psalm 19. God's word is where our minds need to be, where our minds need to be focused. In Psalm 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The mind dwells on these things. When the mind dwells, on God's word. There's even a little higher level than that, isn't there? Where do we really see all these things manifested? In Christ. In Christ. A mind fixed on Christ is a mind that can be at peace. And you know what? If you want to see a man captivated by Christ who lives this life, it's the man who wrote this epistle. And that's exactly where he points us in verse 9. Listen to what he says. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now yet again, there were so many commentators. I'm trying to insult them. I'm just trying to say that this is a way that it, that it went. And those are good things, but not the, the context here. There were commentators that looked at this and said, Paul is speaking in generalities as if he's referring to the whole catalog of his teaching. Everything that I was with you and taught, everything I've written to you and taught, everything you've seen, as, as though Paul was saying, you remember that one time I taught you about the importance of anger management? Practice that and the God of peace is going to be with you. That's not what he's saying, is it? We're still talking about this life of peace. And yes, it's true. As we've already said, if we're living a life of sin and we're living a life that's going off into worldliness, we're not going to have peace. Because... We're not going to be able to in our own hearts because our conscience is going to condemn us. The Holy Spirit is going to convict us. And then the accuser himself is going to come. And what does he do when we're in sin? You're not even a Christian, are you? 
No way a Christian would do something like this. You're not a pastor. You're not an elder. You're not a deacon. You're not qualified to do this. There's no way that any other pastor does this. No way any other Christian could do this. And I'm telling you, that's when we lose our Christian joy, isn't it? That's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is telling them and pointing them to his life that he has lived before them. This life of peace that he has. He clearly has it to an incredible degree that's available to you. So he says, what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, all the things that I have taught you about this, about this joyful life that I am living. Yet again, in verse 10, he's going to do it again. What's he, what he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. What's he doing? He's presenting his life of joy. And then he's going to talk about his contentment in the midst of his imprisonment. He is presenting himself here as an example of how to live the life of joy in the midst of suffering and trouble. Follow my example is what he is saying. Imitate me in my joy and my prayerfulness. Imitate me and where my mind is fixed. Obviously, the Apostle Paul's mind is fixed on Jesus Christ. This letter is really all about Christ. It's all about his joy in the Lord and in the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the example of one who is always rejoicing and he's telling about them or telling them to follow him and imitate him in that. Now there's a promise that he gives here though. Follow me in this way of joy. And this is what he says. And the God of peace will be with you. Hear what I'm saying. And put these things into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. That's a promise. So let me ask you then. This is our third week in this. We've, by the time I'm finished with this, we will have spent about three hours in looking at these verses. That, that, that deal with this problem of, of joy and anxiety and all that thing. What has changed in your life in the last three weeks? Which of these things have you put into practice? One of the things that, that really discourage pastors, can you guess what it is? When, when they preach and they labor and there doesn't seem to be anyone listening, anybody paying attention. Now, I don't feel that way, just, just letting you know that, but I've heard that from, from several of my friends who are in the ministry. And I, and I can see that, I can understand that. And I think a lot of times we fall into the routine of things, don't we? We come in here and we hope for some good songs and good time of fellowship with our brothers and sisters and we want to hear an entertaining sermon, hope the pastor has a good story or two to keep me awake or whatever. And, and we leave and we go home and maybe we look at our spouse and we say that was good today or that was terrible today or whatever. And we really don't think about any of the actual content of what was said. We don't ask ourselves, how can we put these things into practice? We don't pray and ask the Holy Spirit to recall these things to our attention so that we can actually live them out the next time we're feeling this pattern of worry and fear. I mean, it does you no good to hear and not do. That is a general biblical truism. 
Be doers of the word and not hearers only, James writes. It it reminds me of, of Jesus again in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Verse 24, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Now I want you to know, the storm came on both men. There's going to be troubles in, in life. But the one who built his house upon the rock, which was hearing and doing... What God's word has taught, what Jesus has taught, his house was built upon such a foundation that even though the storm came, it stood. It's a very important emphasis upon hearing and then seeking the Lord to equip you and empower you to put the principles that he has in his word into practice. Don't just hear these things. Do these things. Pray. Rejoice, meditate on excellent things, God's word and on the person of Jesus Christ. And the promise is that the God of peace will be with you. I love how this is the inverse of of verse 7. The peace of God, now we have the God of peace will be with you. Isn't that a great statement? The God who brings peace will be with you. The God who brings peace will be with you. Really, in all reality, our peace comes Because we know him. He is the source. He is the fountain. Of all of our peace. And he invites us to come to him. And find our refuge. In him. So we need to ask the question. Do we believe this promise? Do we believe what God's word has said here? In 2 Corinthians 10.5. The apostle writes. To take every thought captive. To obey Christ. Get control of our minds. To focus them on these excellent things. God's word. To focus them on the person of Jesus Christ. And the promise is. That the God of peace. Will be with us. And we can do this. Because Christ strengthens us. To do this. Now I can't finish. This section without reminding you this. If you are here and you do not know Christ, you do not know peace. Your life, it it might be going very well. You might be living in all prosperity. You might be wealthy and healthy and happy. You might be in a wonderful marriage, in a luxury home, driving a Mercedes Benz. You might have a great job. They always say that old saying, if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. You You might be living that. You might be living the dream. And you're looking at me by saying you don't have peace and you think I'm crazy. But I want you to understand this. That you don't have peace. Because this world, though you might have all that prosperity here, it's very temporary. And there is a countdown on your life. And that clock is ticking. Isn't it? For all of us. And one day we're going to stand before God. And what we need more than anything in the world. Is to have peace with Him. That's what matters. 
Peace with God. Not peace in earthly matters. Not a life free from trouble. The rich fool that Luke describes, if I'm not mistaken, in Luke 12 had it all. He had so much, I'm going to tear down my barns and build more. Just to store it all. And what did Jesus say? You fool. Today your soul is required of you. What do you have to show for it? We need peace with God. And it comes one way. You must be born again. You must come to believe in Jesus Christ. It's only through Him that you can have peace with God. The Apostle writes in Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father sent God the Son on a mission, 2 Corinthians 5 says, of reconciliation to restore that which is broken between God and man. And Christ, through His life and death and resurrection, has made reconciliation possible for all of us. What must we do? Believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. And we will have peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Peace with God. And when we stand before Him on that day, He's going to say, welcome. Welcome. Because we will know Him as Father. And He knows us as sons and daughters. That's the peace, folks, that you need more than anything in the world. Do you have it today? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these promises. Help us by your spirit to believe them, to rest in you, to, to know of the sufficiency that is in the finished work of, of you, our Lord Jesus, on our behalf, that we will live our lives in that peace. And if we have that peace, peace with you, then we can have peace in every other area of our life. Our greatest need has been taken care of because we have been forgiven of our sins and we have been adopted into your family. Lord, what is it that could detract from that? But help us in this world of trials and tribulations and difficulties. Help us to have, live lives of peace because our minds are fixated upon you that we sing not only with our lips but in our hearts about the goodness of Jesus that we are satisfied because you are all that we need Lord help us by your spirit to take these words that we have seen in your scripture in your Bible and put them into practice to be hearers and to be doers we pray